All right, let's go. All right, good morning, everybody. Let's, uh, man, let's get ready. What a good morning it's been already. Let's uh, take our Bibles and open them to Revelation chapter 3, and very shortly we'll continue in our Bible study series that we have been doing in the last month or so. Um, kind of set that up. I, w- I want you to think about something. I, have you ever noticed, and so let me, let me just start by helping the young people. So you all right down here. It means we're, we're together. We good? All right, looking around, you'll get your Bibles. You'll be okay. Young people, we got some over here. And actually at my age, a lot of y'all are young people. But we'll focus on y'all for a second. One of the things that happens a lot is that, yeah, you're younger than I am too, Tina. Don't worry. That's all, I get it. I know you're younger than I am. Um, one of the things that happens a lot in, in your age and stage of life is the fact that if you haven't had a good, healthy relationship with your parents, if for some reason the, the, the parental situation in your world has just not been fair, it's not been right, it's been a challenge, it's been difficult. And there is something particularly unique about even fathers, even maybe more than mothers, if I can say, the influence that a father has in guiding a family. If you don't get the approval, if you don't get the love that you need from your dad, um, that's hard. That's hard for you. And, and you know what? A lot of people into their adult years, y- you'll survive, you'll endure, you'll get through, but a lot of people really carry that with them for a long time. I mean, it is, it is and, and, and a lot of you, if you come from solid homes that parents love you and they show that, that really is, you, you may not even appreciate it like your parents wish you did, but you'll learn to appreciate it. You absolutely will because it's that important of a thing. And, and now let me just take a second and talk to us who are parents because we know that when our children do appreciate what we offer them, right? When our children do respond and they do honor the things that we ask of them, man, that, that changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, don't you just, I know we're not supposed to say we have favorites, <laughs> The idea is children that are obedient and honoring and respectful and sincere and cooperative, man, that that thrills your heart as a parent. You don't love children who are challenged in other areas less. Of course not. The idea is that's just such a, I mean, it's just a breath of fresh air, isn't it? I mean, it really, really is. Um, And so we have this principle in the scriptures. Let me just start by showing you Matthew 25 and verse number 11, where um, Jesus Christ is telling us about, you know, the time of the end and the time of judgment and passing out of rewards and that sort of thing. And Matthew 25, 21 says, did I say 11? I meant 21. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of of the Lord. And there's just a level of joy that comes from an obedient child getting the approval of their father, especially our heavenly father, that results in joy unspeakable, and in this case, eternal, right? So all of us in our lives, right, we put up with junk. (laughs) We put up with difficulties and challenges 
in our lives every day. But those moments, they make it all worth it, don't they? They make it all worthwhile. So in our context of our Bible study, we are doing church history. And we're walking through Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. And we're calling the series The Prophecy of History because at the time it was written it was prophecy, but from this perspective, 2017, almost 2018, y'all, it's history. And so we walk through these churches, and we're going from the time of the apostles in the early church until the time of the rapture at the very end, which we think is fairly soon. And with that, we've seen three main applications, and there's a historical application of seven literal churches that existed in Asia Minor in seven literal cities. We see a practical application of seven kinds of churches, seven kinds of problems that you, inco- you incorporate or you uh, come across in your life as a Christian believer. Uh, so there's application to any one of us at any time as we're dealing with the challenges that we read in any of these churches. But doctrinally and prophetically, it deals with seven periods of church history. And so we have walked through already the first five, and we're on church number six. The first five churches have brought us up to the point in history of about 1500 A.D. And what we're going to do is we're going to jump in now at about 1500, and we're going to look forward. And like I told you last week, man, I could not wait for this week to come, y'all. Because up until this point in history, man, the Christians were getting beat down. Man, they were suffering tremendously. Man, they had everything against them. But eventually, the floodgates are about to explode wide open. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. The Philadelphian church age. And we're calling each church by a short description. And we're required to use the letter P for some reason. And the one we're using this time is Philadelphia is the preaching church. I mean, this church is getting it. They are out preaching the word to the world. It's exciting. So, man, I hope you're, you're excited to get into it. So this is the church that makes their daddy proud. This is the church. We could say it this way. Philadelphia is the church as God intended. You want to know what church is supposed to be about? You look at the Philadelphian church. That's what it's really all about. So y'all ready? Let's, let's settle in, enjoy the ride, okay? We've got a lot of history. It's kind of like school, right? A lot of history, a lot of info. And for some of you, it may just be better just to sit back and take it in. Um, you know, we're recorded now. You can go back and listen again if you need to. Uh, but just enjoy some of the things that many of you will remember from history class and maybe never connected them with the perspective of the Bible. And that's really what we want to see. So we're in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in verse number 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. 
Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And so, Heavenly Father, with this example before us, please, Lord Jesus, speak loud and clear. May we, your children, hear your voice so clearly that we are convicted at the levels at which we are not living up to the way you intend for your church to be. Lord, may we strive to live a life as a Philadelphian. Lord, teach us this hour of the things that you expect and rejoice in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one, we have this outline we followed every church, and this is what we're going to continue with. The church is called. The name of the church is Philadelphia. The name Philadelphia, many of you already know, literally means brotherly love. That's what it means. So today, at a time when everybody thinks that brotherly love is defined by your tolerating their sin, or I guess I should say their alternate lifestyles, if you tolerate it, you're demonstrating love. But interestingly, and probably not surprisingly for this crowd anyway, that's not the way God defines it. God defines it a little bit different, right? So John 3.16 is in the Bible and behind most goalposts, right? And for God so loved the world that what did he do? He made salvation available to you. That's how his love works, right? But with John 3.16, I think you should also know 1 John 3.16, because 1 John 3.16, just throw the first in front of it, right? It's also very similar. Hereby perceive we the love of God. Similar to John 3.16, because he laid down his life for us. But it doesn't just stop there. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So you know how God's defining brotherly love? Make salvation available to more and more and more people. That's real love. Real love is telling people the truth. Real love is letting people know, even if it's not comfortable, that sin hinders your walk and ability to have fellowship with God. And if you don't repent of that sin and receive him as your Savior, you cannot know him in eternity. Well, this defines a time period in history from about 1500 to about 1900 A.D. And we saw last time that around 1500 is kind of the official ushering in of what we know as the Protestant Reformation. But 1900, why do every, every church, we've tried to give you a, a landmark historical event, why we bracket the church at that spot? So the introduction of the Reformation, that's a big deal. But why 1900? Why does it stop there? Well, in 1900-ish, we see the introduction of Bible apostasy. Now, the Philadelphian church age is so phenomenal and so wonderful and so joyful that I decided from the very beginning of developing this series that we're not just taking one week on Philadelphia. We're coming back next week, y'all, and talking about Philadelphia some more. Because it's more fun talking about Philadelphia than it is the one that comes after. <laughs> or the one that comes before. So we're going to give it double time, and we're going to come back and talk more about the English Reformation. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is more about what happened in Europe. Okay, so we're going to talk about the European version, and then eventually we'll come back next time and we'll talk about the English revival and reformation coming into it that way but in 1881 if those if you're interested 
there was a key event where there's two men named Westcott and Hort who put together a Greek text, a critical Greek manuscript of the New Testament that would have been from the North African Alexandrian line of manuscripts, the one that ultimately came up through Jerome's Latin Vulgate into Rome. Okay, and he puts together this Greek text that becomes the basis now of what are every single English Bible on the market except for the King James Bible. Westcott and Hort did that in 1881, and four years later in 1885, the first other English Bible after the King James Bible, the Revised Version, comes out in 1885, and in 1901, the American Standard Version comes out, and since 1901, uh, probably at least 200 more have come out. <laughs> All supposing to just update the antiquated Elizabethan English. Um, it's been done. It's been done. Why do you keep producing more and more Bibles? There must be something more to it. The introduction of Bible apostasy marks the end, the end of Philadelphia. It's the end. And that's something you need to keep in mind. Philadelphia is without question the greatest period in all of church history. It's the only church not called to repent. Now, you really don't see Smyrna called to repent, but very different situations. They were barely staying alive in Smyrna. And also during this time, we see what is referred to as the Renaissance, just in secular history, right? And the Renaissance, the word Renaissance literally means rebirth. And the idea is it's the rebirth of learning. So the totalitarian feudal system that existed throughout Europe is beginning to die off. So this is the time of the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, the scientific revolution. In fact, there are so many advances in society that unsaved people think, hey, the world really is getting better and better and better. So at this time, we have Darwin and evolution being taught as fact during this time. Why? Because of this renaissance, this rebirth of learning, and so many things are getting better. Listen, y'all, things got better because God opened a door that no man could shut. But the Renaissance is one of these course-changing events in history. It was not a revival. It was just the rebirth of secular learning. People like the Crusaders that were sent into Jerusalem to conquer Jerusalem we talked about last time. People like that, they got out of their countries and they began to see the world and they began to realize, hey, there's more out there that we're not aware of. And so humanism and science and all of these things were sparked to cause man to just magnify his ability to keep learning. And so in all the categories I listed for you in your notes, in, the, in, in literature, for example, this is the time of William Shakespeare, some of the greatest literature that was ever put out in English. Uh, in science, this is the time of Copernicus, the model of the planets in the universe, and, and Isaac Newton, right, the laws of physics and gravity. and I mean, Newton, who was a saved man, by the way, uh, Galileo, the astronomer. I mean, back in the day, the Catholic Church would have been, would have, they'd have gotten along with Kyrie Irving. They were the flat earth guys. <laughs> they were the guys that thought that Columbus was going to fall off the edge, right? I mean, no, Copernicus, Galileo, I mean, they laid this thing out. In art, you have Michelangelo with the Sistine Chapel. We have Da Vinci, right, with the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. A lot of this stuff had heavy Catholic influence, but some amazing artwork 
I mean, really, don't talk to me about the modern stuff. Come on. We're talking about Raphael and Rembrandt, and I mean some of the most classic, phenomenal artwork ever at this time. The music of that time were the classics of Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and Wagner and the great composers' architecture with the cathedrals of Europe and rebuilding new ones and the rebirth of what was considered ancient technologies that built the pyramids. The printing press with Gutenberg comes out in 1456, and the first complete book published on the printing press was Wycliffe's Bible. Wycliffe's Bible. Opening the door for mass distribution of the scriptures to the common man. Explorers like Balboa and Magellan crossing the Pacific and Cortez coming and conquering the Aztecs in Mexico and Christopher Columbus and transferring into the New World. And I mean, just think about it. Before Philadelphia, the world understood none of those things I just listed. I mean, you read about history back in the Middle Ages. You don't even realize that all these things we take for granted hadn't even been discovered or developed yet. I mean, it really was dark. It really was very different. But you know what the greatest contribution in my mind anyways is of this renaissance, this rebirth? You know what it did? It opened the eyes of the common man to realize the endless possibilities of new things that are out there. This renaissance of learning, it turned people into understanding the fact, and everybody was tuned into the fact, that we can learn new things. After a thousand years of oppression and trying to keep people in the dark, and not knowing things so that they could be controlled by the existing governmental structures. That's Philadelphia. Some amazing things happened in history at that time. Well, let's talk about how Jesus Christ presents himself. How is he characterized? It says in verse 7, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, that he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. The main issue in Jesus' introduction to the Philadelphian church is this idea of an open door. It's an open door of ministry. It's the idea of the open door, and everything else serves that idea. God steps in and swings the door wide open, and he says to his children, go get them, boys. I'm holding it open. You go get them. And so we read in places like 1 Corinthians 16, 9, For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Notice that that door is opened unto me. They didn't open their own door. God opened the door. Acts 14, 27, And when they were come, they had gathered the church together. They rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he, God, had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. You see, when the door is opened of ministry, it's a door God opens for ministry. It's not something you pry open. 2 Corinthians 2.14, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, I think we call that ministry, a door was opened unto me of the Lord. Colossians 4, 3 and 4, so much so Paul's prayer request, right? With all praying also for us. Why, Paul? That God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. He expects us to do it. Let's pray that God opens doors that no man can shut and that we will walk or run through them. This is Philadelphia. 
This is the context of the wide open door of ministry that we get the real understanding Jesus is driving at with he that is holy. Yes, he's perfect. Yes, he's sinless. But holy also means set apart, sanctified, set apart under the gospel. Why did Jesus come, Luke 19, 10? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Paul, what are you sanctified, set apart unto, Romans chapter 1, verse number 1? I'm set apart unto the gospel. I'm not just set apart from the world. I'm set apart unto the gospel. Jesus Christ, he that is true, John 14, 6. I am the way. I am the truth. He is true. But also John 17, 17 says, sanctify them, set them apart, holy. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. So Jesus Christ is the living word, but we also have the written word, and it is all true. And he that has, here it is, the key of David. Man, what a cool thing to look at, the key of David. And if you want a literal reference for the key of David, I didn't put it in your notes, Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. Just go look it up. It has to do with a guy who literally was given the key, and, and the idea is to the house of David. The house of David is the throne. It's, it's, it's where the king sits in Jerusalem, right? So it's the messianic reign. And the guy's got the keys. He's got the keys to the authority. And that's really the issue. So the reference I did give you is the reference in Acts 13, 22, where it looks back and describes the life of David. And you know, David's the guy who, ha he's the man after God's own heart. What is it about David that made him the man after God's own heart, that made his daddy proud? David was the guy who fulfilled all his father's will. That's what made David special. Uh, the, the reference in 1 Kings, that's a reference just to let you know that God is paying attention, that David blew it sometimes. And it says, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite with Bathsheba, of course he blew it. But generally speaking, David, man, he did exactly what God asked. David held a key to the authority. David understood. And you know what the thing is that's very interesting? Right in the middle of your Bible, if you just let it fall open to the middle, you're probably going to be within a few chapters of what is the longest chapter in all of your Bible, Psalm 119. You've been around here a while, you know where I'm going with this. 176 verses, and the theme of that chapter is man's love for the Word of God, penned by David. Man's love for God's Word. You want to have the key of David? Man, you've got the key to all the authority that God has for your life in this book right here. If you will love it, if you will obey it, if you will do what he says, man, you too can have that. So this is the time when the Bible finally makes it into the common languages. People got copies and people got busy. That's what's happening in history. The Bible is finally here. It's no longer Latin. It's no longer a language I don't understand. It's not just mystic and mysterious. It's not just some priest standing up and saying things I don't understand, but I feel kind of cool and religious because they're saying things I don't understand. One, I mean, one of the deaths of the strength of the Catholic Church coming out of the Dark Ages is the fact that when the common man finally found out what they were really saying, they were like, that's all he's been saying? <laughs> You're kidding, right? And so now, man, they got the word, and they're like, this is life-changing. We've got to do something with this. What a sad rebuke it is on some of us who have freely had access 
to the same treasure. But we're so accustomed to it. I mean, I can't really get busy for the Lord. I mean, I mean, I got Netflix. I mean, I got stuff to do, you know. And we're so complacent. Man, I hope we don't stand next to too many Philadelphian guys at the judgment seat. What is, how is Jesus introducing himself to this church? Jesus is basically saying, my life is all about ministry. And so should yours be. So should yours be. This is the church as God intended. Well, let's look at the condition of this church. Third point. In every church, he says, I know thy works. And he begins to describe their works. Now, we're not going to get through all the text of these verses today. We're going to get some of them next week, okay? So with the parts we don't get, just come on back next week. Uh, but he says, look, I know your works. I've set before thee an open door. No man can shut it. We've talked about that. For thou, wh- Why did he do that? For because thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and has not denied my name. So there really there's three reasons why God opened for them. Because you say, man, I want God to open me a door. Okay, well, let's respond the way they responded. And maybe he'll open for us a door too. I mean, he's no respecter of persons, right? We believe that. Well, one of the reasons is because they were humble, y'all. They were humble. It says, thou hast a little strength. A little strength, right? Listen, the Philadelphian church believers, they understood and they recognized they couldn't open a door to ministry if they wanted to. I don't have the strength to be able to do such a thing. And the Lord says, perfect. Just exactly what I was hoping you'd conclude. That's exactly right. You think about all the church growth strategies and all the people who make millions of dollars writing books to suckers like you, sorry, that might buy those books and think, that, oh man, if we'll just paint our sign this color and if we'll put chairs instead of pews and if we'll dim the lights and have smoke on the stage and if we never say um while we're on stage, I mean, man, people are going to flock to our church. Uh, Good luck, open your own door. Good luck, open your own door. God's got to open the door and he's only going to do it when you recognize you don't have any strength. 2 Corinthians 12, 10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, Paul said, in reproaches, in pleasure, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses. Man, none of us are saying that. Let me say, I'm not saying that. (laughs) Here's the conclusion. For when I am weak, then am I strong. That's not my strength. When I recognize I don't have any. Remember that hall of fame of people of faith in Hebrews 11, and we've referred to it several times through church history. Hebrews 11.34, some of these people quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, Notice, out of weakness, we're made strong. Out of weakness. You want to be strong in the Lord? You need to be weak. God gave them an open door because they were weak. They were humble. They had some strength, but it was very little. And they were faithful. They kept his word. They were courageous. They wouldn't deny his name. People before him denied his name. So, man, this is worthy of having in your notes. In Philadelphia, man, they obeyed my word and they preserved my word. They kept my word. The only church that is said to have kept the word of God. Yes, there's an element of obedience, but yes, there is an element of preserving the perfect word of God. 
They didn't bow to worldly social pressures. They kept the word of God pure. They wouldn't accept Alexandrian Bibles that deny the name and the deity of Jesus Christ in multiple places. And that's why the Bible that we believe and use in this church was produced in the Philadelphian church period. Yes, it matters. It matters. In Philadelphia, y'all, the enemies of the church came from outside the church, not inside. There's no rebuke for this church for heresy or divisions, which, by the way, are easier circumstances to deal with. When the attacks and pressures come from the outside, right, you can all hunker down and love each other and trust God more and fight the bad guys out there. But when the attacks and the division come from within, and maybe even from leaders within, you don't know who to trust. You don't know who to look at. You don't know where to turn. And you know what the average Christian does? They throw up their arms and they're like, oh, I'm, I'm tapping out. I don't know what to do, man. Yeah, I just, holy. That's not what was going on in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, it was different. So what do Christians look like who are humble before God and o- obey God's pure word? Well, a lot of them were called reformers. And the first one is Martin Luther. Martin Luther led the German Reformation. Let me tell you a few things about Martin Luther. Absolutely the most famous and most important of all the reformers. No question about it. In 1505, he entered an Augustinian monastery after a near-death crisis. In 1507, he was ordained a Catholic priest. 1510, 1511, he takes a trip to Rome. He wants to actually see, take a pilgrimage to the Mother Church. What he saw was abuses and corruption firsthand. So he began to be be disillusioned against the Pope. In 1514, he had his famous conversion experience. He's reading in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 where it says, The just shall live by faith. And Martin Luther was converted, and the world would never be the same. That time, the next year, 1515, again, he's an educated religious man. Now he's saved. He decides to begin a series of lectures. Basically, he's going to preach through the book of Romans. He set forth the basis, all of this on the basis of his personal faith in Jesus Christ. And his original aim, his original aim was to reform the errors in what was considered the true church, the Catholic church. So then in October 31st of 1517, we mentioned it last month, he had his 95 theses that he nailed to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, where he lived, to basically protest the issue of abuses in the Catholic indulgences. Indulgences is where people are literally paying for favors. And and the corrupt system was making a lot of bank on the fact that people felt oppressed spiritually and religiously what you need to know about luther is luther was not against the idea of the right of the pope to have indulgences he just didn't like the abuses so most of the 95 points just deal with the abuses of these indulgences he actually intended for it to be an honest intellectual debate academically with the higher learned of the Catholic Church. He literally thought that they would discuss it and they'd come around. 
That's what he thought. So good positive thinking. Didn't work out that way. He spent the rest of his life preaching this reformed theology and winning the masses, and he ultimately refers to the Pope as your hellishness or the most hellish father. So not surprisingly, Pope Leo X in 1520 excommunicated him out of the Catholic Church. So he continued his work in Germany and ultimately perfected, in my opinion, all of his work with the translation of Luther's German Bible based on the right Greek text of a man named Erasmus that we'll talk about next week. There's another man named Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli is the leader of the Reformation in Switzerland, the Swiss Reformation. Uh, By 1522, he preached in earnest the sole authority of the Scripture, converted large crowds and government officials to reform theology. And by the end of 1522, he had changed the laws of the city of Zurich to state the pure word of God alone was to be preached. He understood that there is a pure and that there is an impure that had previously been abused by Rome. Why can't people get that today? Zwingli got it 500 years ago. We should be able to get that today. He published 67-point fundamental doctrinal statement and articles of faith. And the reforms that he proposed were passed into civil law in Zurich, Switzerland. Images, relics, the mass, all of those things were banned in Zurich. But one of the other things he did, and we'll see this again in a second, he persecuted a group called Anabaptists over the issue of infant baptism. So in other words, religion and policy, remember the separation of church and state we talked about? Anytime you combine church and state, pick your favorite church. It's going to be messed up until Jesus comes and does it right. The third big name in the Reformation is John Calvin. He led the French Reformation. So you see these lights all over Europe begin to pop up as God's doing things. Calvin is probably the second most famous reformer after Luther. Uh, Calvin was eight years old when Luther had nailed those 95 theses. Uh, He published in 1536 his most famous work called Institutes of the Christian Religion. You can buy them today. Uh, It becomes the doctrinal basis for the French Reformation, and his theology, as we referred to as Calvinism, uh, is nothing more than a rehash of Augustine, the 5th century premier Catholic theologian. He took Augustine's writings, he reworked them, excuse me, and he put them out kind of on steroids to really overemphasize the idea of man's inability to even be able to respond to God. Man has no free will whatsoever, and God sovereignly elects those whom he chooses. And so this idea spread rapidly throughout Europe, so much so that if you read church history and about certain cities and times where they wrote an official confession of the faith, most all of those confessions of the faith will be Calvinistic. They'll be Calvinistic. But not everybody agreed with Calvin's version of Christianity. Uh, The counter to Calvinism was proposed by a guy named Jacob Arminius, and so it's called Arminianism. Okay, now they, people say that they fought together. Um, Arminius was one year old when Calvin died. 
So he definitely came the gener next generation. He read Calvin's works, and he reacted, knee-jerk reaction, to the opposite extreme. So if we were to summarize, Calvinism is man has no free will, and God basically forces the elect to be saved. Arminianism took the stand that man has a part in obtaining his own salvation. In other words, there's an element of his works. Not only an element of his works in gaining salvation, but an element of his works in keeping his salvation. And so the standard question that most people will propose, and today if you meet a, a, a fanatical Calvinist, they're always going to say, are you a Calvinist? And you'll say no, hopefully you'll say no. And, uh, and they'll say, well, do you believe in eternal security? And you'll say yes. They say, well, you're a Calvinist. Well, why? They say, well, because the only other choice is Armenian, and Armenians don't believe in eternal security. So they'll say, are you a Calvinist or are you Armenian? Well, you know what the right answer is, don't you? It's neither. It's neither. I'm neither Calvinist, neither Armenian, because they are the two extremes. The truth in many cases, right, in any issue, not always, the truth is generally found in the middle. Uh, I would consider our position, the biblical position, uh, some people out there call it traditionalist. You can look up traditionalism. Uh, but it basically is the biblical stance. Um, Calvin did have a cousin, though, in 1537 named Pierre Olivetin. And Olivetin published the French Bible from the Antiochian text of Erasmus. Uh, Calvin, what he did was, he established what was referred to as the perfect Christian society in the city of Geneva, Switzerland. It was, literally was a theocratic dictatorship patterned after Augustine's work, The City of God. And Bible reading and church attendance, notice, was mandated by law. The Mass was outlawed. He was called the Protestant Pope. He executed 58 of his adversaries between 1541 and 1546. The most notable is a man named Michael Servetus in 1553, who published a work called The Restitution of Christianity Against Calvinism. He was arrested, he lost his battle in court, go figure, and burned at the stake on October 27, 1553. Listen, these reformers, they did some good stuff, <laughs> but they had issues. <laughs> they had some issues. Number four, John Knox, the head of the Scottish Reformation. I mean, these are famous guys, y'all. Uh, so John Knox, he flees Scotland under the persecution, and he goes to Calvin's Geneva for asylum. He ultimately returns back to Scotland, and he, he leads their Reformation. When Queen Elizabeth ascends to the throne after the death of Bloody Mary, who is staunchly Catholic, Elizabeth is professed to be a born-again believer and definitely pro-freedom of religion. Opens the door for him to be able to return to Scotland and do that. Under his leadership, mobs destroy the Catholic monasteries in response to his preaching. Scottish Parliament enacted reformed law, and the Church of Scotland, formerly chartered, is based on Knox's theology. The Church of Scotland takes on different forms as it evolves then as it comes to the New World and the Americas and basically becomes what we know today as Presbyterian or Episcopalian churches. At this time in history, there's an explosion of Protestant denominations all throughout Europe. So you have the Lutherans after Luther, and you have the Anglicans or the Episcopals that come out of England, and you have the Mennonites that follow a man named Menno Simons, who was basically out of Holland, the Presbyterians from John Calvin, the Puritans from a guy named Thomas Cartwright, the Separatists, a guy named Robert Brown, the Congregationalists, the Quakers, the Methodists, John Wesley. And all this begins to flow during Philadelphia. 
You know what the results of the Reformation really are? There were some really good results. They break the yoke of Rome over the nations politically. And they challenge the Roman religious authority. They stimulate the masses of people to learning, Bible reading, independent thought, and they revived the Antioch text of the Bible. They put that Bible in the language of the common man. But above all, you know what was going on? These reformers, these famous, used to be Catholic, now trying to reform the mother church, they made a lot of noise, they got a lot of attention. But they weren't doing the bulk of the real Bible-believing work. Remember those guys we've talked about in weeks past called heretics? They came under all these different names that maybe you never heard of before we studied. All those heretics were really getting the work done while these guys were getting the attention of Rome. Have, have any of you guys had like an older brother who, when you were kids, you'd play around and wrestle and fight and stuff like that, and if he was old enough more than you, you know, he'd do one of these deals where he's like, hey, hey, look at this hand, look at this hand, he'd slap you with this one. You're, anybody else have a bad situation like that? The reformers were these guys. Hey, look at the hand, look at the hand. And the other guys came around this way when nobody was looking and took the Bible to the world because God opened the door for them and distracted everybody else so that they could do what they needed to do. So the last one I want you to know something about are the Anabaptists. And Anabaptist is just a name that basically means another baptism. The idea is, is that they found the idea that in the Bible, believers in Jesus Christ are baptized only after they come to their own faith in Jesus Christ, not as infants. And so they would re-baptize people who had been baptized as infants in the Catholic Church once those people truly got saved. And so it was another baptism. It was a new baptism. Now, the Anabaptist didn't, was not a title of a denomination. It was not the name of a specific group. It was just a general label given to these radical Protestants, right, who opposed any kind of a church-state religious setup. And they held to the authority of local independent churches. And then over time, the Anna just fell off, and they're just Baptists. They're just Baptists. So this was a general title given to what was considered these splinter groups, kind of like Acts 11.26, the term Christian was giving to Bible-believing Christians in Antioch. It wasn't a term of endearment at the time. So you need to know this. Anabaptists were opposed and persecuted by both Rome and the Reformers. You need to know that. There's always been a true line of people who have loved God and stood for the truth, who have always been oppressed by anybody with religious power. The key doctrines of the groups that come out of this wave are the Bible is the sole authority, local assemblies are free from state and ecclesiastical control, a person must be born again, and only professing believers are to be baptized. I, I pulled a photo off of a website here from a place called Behalt. Do we have that photo? Behalt is a, it's a, it's a museum in Berlin, in Berlin, Berlin, I always say that wrong. It just, I mean, it's like a half hour from here. Y'all need to go to Behalt. I'm not kidding. And they have this giant room, it's circular. Anybody ever been to Behalt? God bless you, man. It's, it's worth, y'all, it's in our backyard. 
And what that, this mural starts with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and it works its way all the way around, and you'll get a guide for about 10 bucks. Okay, maybe they'll give me something for free because I'm pitching them. Okay, so, and you'll go around and they'll tell the story of the history of the church of the Anabaptists. Because among Anabaptists are Mennonites and Amish and, and all of them as well, as well as regular Baptists. And so, I mean, that, that's right in our backyard, y'all. I mean, you really, should, you really should take advantage of that. Okay, letter B, the weakness and eventual failure of the Protestant Reformation otherwise known as why I am not a Protestant. So these things that we mentioned make it fairly clear. So the Reformers were definitely saved men, right? But they had some problems. So one of the problems is that Protestantism is an attempt to reform the Catholic Church. It's kind of like trying to reform a sinner, right, without salvation. You can't reform a sinner into salvation, they need a complete transformation. They need an entirely new life. And by the way, y'all, we're not pro... I know it might sound, might sound like it. We're not protesting the Catholic Church. We're just trying to do it right. That's all. We're just trying to do it like God prescribed. Uh, number two, Protestantism continues the major Catholic doctrines and practices. And what we see is that most of the Reformers continued to practice things like infant baptism and some form of the Mass... They still kept some level of a priesthood, Nicolaitan priesthood. They typically weren't involved in missions. Evangelism was taking place mainly by law and natural birth and baptism into the society of that country. They have liturgy and ritual and the Eucharist and traditions and ecclesiastical control from some central authority. And the third thing is the establishment of these Protestant state religions. And these reformers continued the practice of persecuting dissenters. So, listen, religious murder is wrong no matter who carries it out. So that's the weakness and the failure of the Protestant Reformation. Everybody wants to talk about Reformed theology, the reformers. Let's go back to the Reformation. Well, the Reformation was this hand. Watch the hand. You don't really want to go back to the Reformation. That's not the be-all, end-all of everything. It was just the time frame in which... They had a role, yes, while God did amazing things through other people nobody seems to know much about. Letter C, the golden age of missions. Philadelphia is the golden age of missions. Man, finally, I wish we had more time. Y'all have to read missionary biographies. William Carey, the father of modern missions. The father of modern missions. And ends up leaving for India in 1793, spends the rest of his life there establishing mission churches. His best friend was a guy named Andrew Fuller, who stayed behind in England. He couldn't go to India, and he said, you go, I'll hold the ropes. You know, we use that phrase today. If we're not going, we say, man, I'll hold the ropes for you. I'll pray for you. I'll keep, I'll keep the Lord's center in my heart and my mind, and he'll be in the center of your ministry. Uh, Carrie was inspired by Captain Cook's voyages. He was inspired by these explorers, Columbus, Magellan, Vespucci. He, he worked in a cobbler's shop, and he hung a world map on the wall next to his cobbler's bench and dreamed about native peoples around the world coming to know Jesus Christ. He would go to churches, and he would plead for missions efforts worldwide. And he got up one time and I preached out of Isaiah 54 a message on missions. 
and he was rejected by the established church with this quote, where the pastor of that church said, Sit down, young man. If God wants to save the heathen, he can do it without us. It's a good Calvinist. It's a good Calvinist. He first departs in 1792. The voyage fails. He ends up coming back. Everybody said he was crazy and out of his mind, his wife being one of them. The story is told that he literally had to drag his wife onto the ship in 1793 to get her to go with him. Not typically the model we want, but you know, hey. (laughs) Spends the next 40 years planting churches in India. But before William Carey, there were the Moravians. And the Moravians were started by a guy named Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. They established a home called Hernhut, a refuge for persecuted believers in 1722. Sent out hundreds of missionaries around the world. Moravian churches exist today, some in our area. It all started with a 24-hour, around-the-clock prayer ministry that operated nonstop for 100 years. No wonder God did amazing things. One of the purest models of foreign missions ever in history. They have a logo and a crest. Do we have that photo? The logo and the crest is an oxen between an altar and a plow. If you know anything about the Bible, you know an oxen represents a Christian minister, a worker. And like the Christian minister, an ox, he's between the altar and the plow. In other words, saying, we're ready for either one. We're going to work for the Lord, and they can kill us if they want, but we're going to work for the Lord. Those are the Moravians. Amazing. You know that this area was settled by Moravian missionaries we talked about before as they were trying to reach the Native Americans in this Ohio Valley area. Missions exploded and circled the globe in less than 25 years. It was a movement, a revival that parallels the only thing that ever paralleled what we read about in the book of Acts. They went out with a one-way ticket and never returned. You kiss your mama goodbye and you'll see her in heaven. Some of these people wanted to reach slaves that were going to be these men that were sold into slavery. These Africans were sold into slavery and were shipped off to the West Indies. And they wanted to reach these slaves on these slave ships going into the West Indies. And the only way, they wouldn't let them. They wouldn't let them on the ship. They wouldn't let them interact with the slaves because these were free men. And they said, we'll just be slaves. These Moravians said, we'll, we'll, we'll just turn ourselves over to be slaves because we need to reach these slaves for Jesus Christ. Um, you know, we won't go somewhere if they don't have air conditioning. I mean, this is the real deal, y'all. This is the real deal. They sent out about 3,000 missionaries in the next 100 years. David Livingstone goes to Africa. Humble guy, grew up in Scotland. Worked at a textile mill. He's approved as a missionary to China, but that didn't work out for him. He meets a guy named Robert Moffat, famous missionary that worked in the northern part of South Africa. He learned of different opportunities there. And he goes and he visits and he tells Livingstone this statement. This is a famous quote. He says to him as he's trying to inspire this young man to serve the Lord around the world, he says, I've seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary has ever been. This grips his heart. Eventually he arrives in 1840 by ship and Livingstone is shocked to discover the discord among the missionaries. I'm embarrassed to have to tell you that that exists today. Here's a quote from Livingstone. He says, The missionaries in the interior are 
I'm grieved to say, a sorry set. I'll be glad when I get away into the region beyond, away from their envying and backbiting. He claimed that there was no more Christian affection between most, if not all, of the brethren and himself than there is between a riding ox and his grandmother. But by 1852, he realized that life and African expeditions were no place for a mother and little children. And he had to decide what he was going to do. And so he made this quote. It is a venture to take wife and children into a country where fever, African fever, prevails. But who that believes in Jesus would refuse to make a venture for such a captain? So he chose to send his wife and children back to England, and he went on. He ultimately, if you fast forward and read his story, he, he continued to, to search and to work the innermost regions where no one had gone, and till one day he is found dead, leaning over on his knees in a position of prayer. Probably no greater position. Ultimately, the African believers that so loved him when they found him, they decided that, I know we need to send his body back to England for a proper burial, but before we send his body back to England, they cut out his heart and they buried his heart in Africa. They said his heart belonged to the African people. Should there not be a people that can say that about your heart? Should there not be a people that would say his heart belong to those people. Listen, we don't have time to talk about Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission. Hudson Taylor is famous for taking the gospel. Up until now, the gospel typically stayed in the coastal regions. He takes it into the inland. Hudson Taylor is famous for living like the nationals. Hudson Taylor is a tall, light-haired, light-skinned, blue-eyed European. And now he's living in China, and he decides he's going to dress like a Chinaman. (laughs) trying to blend in didn't seem to work too good so he decides look I'm gonna the way they had their hair you know some of it was shaved here and it would go into a long black ponytail and so he dyes his hair and he puts extensions in and he ties it in a ponytail and he did everything he could to become as Chinese as he possibly could and he lived his life far away from other missionaries who still had that backbiting and territorial weirdness and he lived his life establishing work that still exists today in China. Adoniram Judson in Burma is the first Baptist missionary sent from North America. And there are many and many and many others. Please do yourself a favor. Buy missionary biographies. Read them with your children. You want heroes today, y'all? These are the heroes. Forget the sports figures with big numbers on their chest. Read about real heroes Let's celebrate with the church and we'll be done. Every church, it says, to him that overcometh, and there's some rewards. Will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I'll write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. So the church is rewarded, first and foremost, with a new home. With a new home. It says that he'll be a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, you know, pillars 
They're foundational. Pillars are permanent. Pillars are frequently decorated to honor someone or something. A pillar is the strength upon which the entire structure rests. That's Philadelphia. They will be honored for their strength. They will be honored for what they have done. You're, you're Bible students. You know that in 1 Corinthians 3.17, the body of Christ is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Philadelphia is the pillar of that temple. And 1 Timothy 3.15 says that the church is the pillar and ground of all truth, right? But among the church, Philadelphia, that's the pillar. And maybe it's most significant because it says you'll go no more out. You know why that's a reward for the Philadelphian overcomer? Because what did the Philadelphian overcomer do his whole life? Go out, go out, go out. They got the book and they got busy. They got the book and they got busy and they went out and they preached and they preached and they preached and they preached and they they continued and they pushed the envelope and they widened their borders and they preached and they told more people and they were going and going and they left and they never came home. And in the millennial kingdom, Jesus says, come on home, just stay home. You are the pillar. I'll send other guys out. You stay here. You just stay home. That's the reward. Oh, by the way, that also tells us what you would have had to have done to qualify as an overcomer. You had to go out. You had to go out. I mean, the door, think about it, think about it. How are you an overcomer? God kicks the door wide open. And you stay in your lazy boy. Good name for a chair, by the way. Lazy boy. (laughs) And just look at the view out your front door. (laughs) You're not going out. Overcomers walked through the door and never quit walking. They get a new home. Let her be, they get a new identity. A new identity. The name of my God, the name of the city, and Jesus' name. That's a new identity. So you get the Father, you get the Son, and you get the Bride. Right? Isn't that what Revelation 21 says? New Jerusalem comes down from heaven. It is the Bride adorned for her Bridegroom. It's the church. Right? So you get the name. Just like a bride, what does a bride do? Well, forget today, because today's weird. But except for today, most every bride takes the name of her husband, which is the name of his father. Right? I mean, don't get mad at me, but every woman has a man's name. Every woman has a man's name. You have your father's name, and you're only allowed to change it Well, you do whatever you want now. Again, forget now. You're only supposed to change it when you take your husband's name. Otherwise, you get what you get. So they're married into the family. They got a new identity. That's a special thing. That's because of situations like Colossians 3 and verse 3. They understood you're you're dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. 
that's their identity. What's your identity? So how am I applying this to my life today? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, all of us. The church in Philadelphia is the church as God intended. Now that we've learned a few things about Philadelphia, ask yourself this question. What do you think God expects of you? What do you think God expects of you? We know what He intended for them. What does He intend for us? He's no respecter of persons. Will you honor the preserved Word of God in English? We'll talk more about that next week. Will you obey what you already know? You say, I don't know much. Yeah, you know enough to do it. <laughs> the first thing you add to your faith in 2 Peter is virtue. And then on virtue, you add knowledge. Are you willing to be virtuous to what you already know? You know what the problem for most of us is going to be at the judgment seat of Christ? It's not that we didn't know stuff. The problem for most of us at the judgment seat of Christ is that we didn't do the things we already know. Would you be willing to do that today? Hey, if Jesus returned today, would he say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant? Will you take his word to the world of unsaved people? Will you do that? Listen, only after a life of going and going and going and going do you get the reward. Stay home. Y'all don't want to use up your reward now, do you? I mean, that's just bad planning. Let's do what he prescribes. That's usually a good idea. But you know what? We're not Calvinists. You have free will. You can decide to say no thanks. I advise that you don't. Let's pray together.